Welcome to the Business of Agriculture, a podcast created to enlighten, inspire, and inform those who work in or depend on the world's most important endeavor, agriculture. Here's your host, Damian Mason. Hey, greetings. Thanks for being here on another episode of the Business of Agriculture. Got a great show for you today because I got a great guest. This woman right here is named Christy Apple, sometimes digitally known as Crop Scout Christy. If you keep up with my stuff online, you very well might see her stuff online. She is an agronomy person. She has her own business. She has also a gainful employment. She's got a hell of a history, and she's going to talk about a vast array of specialty crops that are grown in Michigan. And we're going to talk about what that whole thing looks like, including hemp, which is a new and emerging product line. Christy Apple, thank you for being on the show. Thanks for the invitation, Damien. Always a pleasure. All right. So here's the deal. We're coming to you from the Midwest studios of Executive Entertainment, Bowen and Bike uh, Publishing, and uh, De La Rosa Farms. But this is all brought to you by my good friend, Nick Horeb, who has the company Harvest Profit. If you've been listening to my show, you know about Harvest Profit. It's a software solution that will help your agricultural enterprise be more profitable. After all, this is a business, and that's why you listen to the Business of Agriculture podcast. You've got inputs. You've got supplies. You've got acres. You've got landlords. You have so much stuff to manage. Are you doing that like with index cards in, in an old recipe drawer? No, you should do it like a professional. Go on harvestprofit.com and see what their product can do to help your business run like the business it is. All right. Damien Mason, Christy Apple, we know each other. We're buddies. She's a past client of mine. Hired me to do a thing back when she was an ag retailer up in uh, Mount Pleasant, Michigan. So we've been keeping up ever since. And she's making a visit here to De La Rosa Farms, going to give me some stellar advice. And I said, let's go in here and talk about you, but also more importantly, about specialty crops and about the emergence of hemp and what's going to happen with that. So some background. You were an ag retailer. Start somewhere in there. So about 11 years ago, um, my husband and um, his business partner, Chris, and myself um, launched an ag retail to service uh, a small area in central Michigan, um, in the Gratiot County area. Um, and really, that's where it all began. Um, both Jason and Chris really wanted to focus on soil health and finding solutions that were geared for improving soil quality while still keeping the farmer profitable. And so they were really doing soil health before it was cool. Um, they were one of the uh, old schoolers in the business, if you if you will, Today, that's a very popular term. That's a buzz phrase. And actually, I don't even like to use that term anymore because what? it means too many things. What, wait, wait, which which term? Old schooler? <laughs> which term? Which Are you taking offense to old school? No, I just want to know which one's, which one's the buzz for, phrase that you so, don't like anymore. Soil health. I really don't like to use that terminology anymore. Okay, so everybody talks about soil health, but it's interesting. Um, I know that there's people that talk to... I, I saw an advertisement for some sort of tillage machine that looked like straight out of the 1970s. They were throwing the... So beating the shit out of it and it talked about you know how are you can you improve your soil health and I'm like not by doing not that that's what I remember thinking but anyway. that's right that's right so soil health kind of falls under a lot of different categories. There's many different things that affect soil health. And so I really like to talk about it in terms of, you know, what's culturally fitting for your farm and, and what's best for your individual soils there. So it takes a little more individual approach. And that's how we started our business, a Ag, all those years ago. That's right, so, how I got my start in agronomy. Okay, so you were um, a sales-oriented person more than an agronomically-oriented person. You hook up with your dude, and you have a small, uh, independent, but... Uh, 
it served a bit of a niche, <clears throat> not not just your basic big broad acre row crop stuff. You were in uh, a little bit of nichey stuff with your ag retail unit uh, even back then, right? Absolutely. So our our we hung our hat on um, focusing on ways to make uh, materials more efficient, ways to grow better roots, and ways to help improve soil quality over time. So all of our solutions that we were offering looked very much like that, and that was that was really um, very unique at that time. So if you think back in terms of what did 2008, 2009, 2010 look like in agriculture, um, it was the lowest of the low in the housing market. And when housing is terrible, ag is strong. And that has been a traditional you know, ebb and flow. And so we entered into some of the best times in ag ever recorded, um, which gave us a really interesting perspective. People were listening to us in the message that we had because the, the financial barriers to enter into a soil health compliant program was the biggest obstacle previous to that. Suddenly guys were like, well, let me think about this and realizing that this isn't about spending more money. It's about spending money in places that made the most sense. So that right. was kind of where we started. Yeah. So incidentally, we call that being counter cyclical. Agriculture is typically counter cyclical to the mainstream economy. So if everybody's talking about how amazing things are uh, for Main Street America, that usually means it's really bad for uh, agricultural America. But it just tends to be that way. So what she's talking about then is they found a sort of carving out a niche. Um, and and uh, you're big on soil health and not, not just your basic. Let's go out here and see how many gallons of atrazine we can dump on the ground. And then you became you're a self-taught agronomist you don't you know you don't like you don't have your michigan state i was a, an agronomy 303 person you're a self-taught and self-studied right absolutely so my entrance into the agronomy field um kind of started out when i was a child i was a science nerd my parents really fostered my interest in um, studies in geology and soil and biology in fact i actually envisioned myself my dream was to be a pharmacist um, until i realized the amount of calculus that was required for that and i was mm -hmm. like oh that is definitely not for me. And so before I spent too many of the dollars appropriated for education, um, heading down a path that wasn't really right for me, um, I found a different place for myself, and that was studying business. I really enjoyed that. What I didn't know that from a very young age, I actually um, was a natural-born seller. Um, as you can tell, I've been very shy all my life, right? Mm -hmm. Right, right. <clears throat> no. Um, my parents would, uh, still to this day, I'm, I'm 40 years old, my parents still tease me about being able to sell ice to, yeah. you know, I don't know. But anyway, um, it's just part of that thing. And so as I was developing my salesmanship chops and my ability to connect and relate with people, um, I really had an interesting um, journey when I entered into the ag field. It was a way to rekindle my interest in sciences yep. and to marry that with my business acumen that I had gained through the course of my professional career at that point. Um, so I it was a self-taught sort of. Um, I did a ton of private study, professional study, my by myself. Um, it was, this was kind of pre, um, you know, Google world. This was back when computers made a bunch of weird sounds when you plugged them in and mm -hmm. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And um, so I, I really worked hard. I, I showed up every single day to field days. I got cozy and comfortable reaching out to my extension folks, asking the right questions, and learning about the actual practical application. In fact, what I learned was most classically trained agronomists didn't even know half of what I knew because all of my education came from the field. Yeah, so there's an interesting thing there. Uh, you, you know, you, you can't be a degree snob 
And you do have to say, okay, there's obviously credibility based on this thing. You go to, you know, whatever, Michigan State or Kansas State or whatever, and, and you've got this thing. But also there seems to be that thing about bias. Well, by God, I can just tell you this. that professor so-and-so told us this, and it was in 1991 when I was in Agronomy 303. And I can just tell you that. And the thing is, you'll sometimes they don't vary from that very much. The good thing is coming in from an outside perspective is you had to absorb a lot of stuff, and then you weren't preconditioned to say, Say, absolutely not. Here's the way it should always be. Absolutely. And actually, that caused me to ask a lot of questions. I've always been a very inquisitive person. And so um, that's really asking good questions is what helped to, you know, propel me on my journey and then to be able to immediately apply that. So I, I mean, I like to think that I'm like a vocationally trained agronomist. And um, I've been mentored by some really incredible um, agronomists that I've looked up to for years, researchers, and um, really, really interested to c- continue on that journey. One of the things that that bias that you're referring to actually helped to open up the doors and, um, and, and get me hungry for things. What I realized was the wheels kind of been invented with corn and soybeans. Yeah. And not to say that there isn't still things to learn. In fact, what we're learning is the research that was done in the you know 20s and 30s and 40s on NP and K fertilizers were inherently flawed and has caused us to... to to employ uh, practices for multiple generations now that are inherently flawed and in antagonistic to our soil quality and our microbial health. You mean like so, over over utilization? I mean, I know that I've sat through seminars. They talk about uh, actual usable, or the, you know, the actual the ability for the plant to actually get it. it. The stuff might be there because we've kept throwing it on the soil, but there's actually the what do they talk about the uh, you know ability for the plant to uptake it? Is that kind of stuff you're talking about? Yeah, absolutely. So some of the some of the fun fundamental um, industry shaping research that developed how we, uh, you know, our nitrogen practices on corn has now been found to be inherently flawed because we were kind of missing the fact that the soil contains a ton of nutrients and we were disregarding that yeah. and the microbial engagement that it takes to get that. So um, being being a question asker, being a person that doesn't mind challenging the norm and not having those biases of coming through a crop and soil science program, um, I you know, these are, these are questions that don't feel awkward for me to ask. And I'm not afraid to challenge a client that I'm engaging with to think outside of the NP and K box, for example. All right. So one thing that yeah we we uh, obviously we're not bashing on anything. It's just that we've got, like you said, we've kind of got the corn and soybean thing. Uh, you know, we're good at it. We've got it really figured out, and wheat and your basic stuff. But starting when you were an ag retailer, you're in Michigan. Which if the persons that are listening to this, let's say I got somebody that's a equipment dealer in you know Kentucky or uh, you know a cotton person in Texas. Michigan is an amazing state, not because of their governor. That's actually a detriment. But they, the agriculturally, it is an amazing state. They do have your basic row crop stuff, and they have dairies, uh, and they have some uh, limited swine production. Certainly, there's no Iowa. But what they have is grapes and cherries and apples and these things that because of the thermoclimates and microclimates and all that kind of thing that come off the Great Lakes. So you were doing that even starting out. You had to, you were the science person with a sales background that all of a sudden now you got to learn about cherry production because you're helping out your husband and a co-owner and an ag retailer, right? Yeah, actually, um, you know, my husband and his business partner, they grew up in the corn and soybean world. Row crop made sense to them. They had that background and they were really great at it. And they both mentored me a tremendous amount and challenging me to get better and better and better. But what I realized was... I kind of liked the 
the the thrill of the the new challenge. I was hungry to learn something new. I was interested in okay, if this is what we do in corn and soybeans, or this is what we know about tillage in this. What about a permanent crop where I'm not tilling the ground every year? Mm. How does that affect the system? And so I just dove head in, and again, I just went on that journey to find the smartest people that I could find in those realms to introduce myself and to listen and to read their papers and to um, engage at a scholarly level um, and and just start to understand the system, which required also understanding some of the marketing and some of the other aspects. This isn't just plant production, but this is there's a whole a marketing aspect that causes us to produce different cultivars and, and that kind of thing. But you had to go out and find customers that said, um, yeah, well, we were already buying our stuff. I mean, this was not just because you thought it'd be cool to learn about cherries. It was because you also were trying to sell a product. Yeah, actually, um, you know, we did have we did have some great tools in the toolbox to be able to sell on those farms. But this is also what kind of launched my private consulting business, Crop Scout Christie Consulting. And so this has been a really fun journey for me to be able to personally engage. Yes, I do have tools in the toolbox that I can sell. But what I've been able to do in some, you know, in some situations for my clients, especially my remote clients, I have several clients here in Indiana, for example, in industrial hemp. I'm not selling them anything, or I may be selling them one or two things. What I'm doing is giving them the education, helping them to understand this cropping system, and then connecting them with other people that can supply them with the things that they need. Okay, so you're, you've moved on. You've got a normal job, so you do still sell a product, and then you've got your other thing where you're selling knowledge and advisory. So which one you want to talk about first? Uh, the, the still selling a product, um, as in cans of, and bottles and jars and bags, you want to talk about the, the advisory? We can talk about the the advisory. I, I do I do enjoy that part of my life, the the retail side of my life or the the wholesale division. Actually, um, I'll just talk briefly about that, and we can get into um, the Crop Scout Christie world. Um, but I work with TMAC Agro USA. They actually purchased my husband's um, ag retail location um, in 2017, and it was um, it was. A great transition point for me personally. Um, I actually serve that company in a in a couple of different roles, and I lead and train and mentor sales uh, professionals that are trying to develop their acumen um, on their agronomy journey as well. And um, and because I happen to be good at sales, um, that's something that not a lot of folks that know NP and K um, don't always have that. So I can help and, and support and mentor them in all different geographies all around the company. Yeah, you know. Uh, there's the old thing about uh, if you can sell, you can sell, and st- people will get flipped out. I know that some people are more technical, like, well, I'm just not comfortable. I had a, one of my clients wanted to hire me to work with one of their n- newer hires and said, I said, well, what is it you want me to work on? I said, uh, the technical stuff's probably not. He said, no, no, they're amazing at that. They just don't seem to comprehend the business. Side. They said, I want them to be more entrepreneurial. And, and that was the exact comment. I said, oh, you want her him to actually think like his territory is his and own it and realize that when your feet hit the ground every morning, you should be sale, selling stuff. So anyway, you know how to sell stuff, but you kind of changed. Uh, you've got a, a different thing going on your own, and I'm excited about it because uh, you've asked me some questions about developing it. So you came up with this moniker, Crop Scout Christie. Now, am I paying you just to scout my crops? I'm paying you for more than that, right? Absolutely. So I got my start scouting fields. Right. Right. And I feel like it's a homage to my beginnings. Mm -hmm. Crop Scout Christie and that identity started out literally 
trying to understand how this alfalfa crop is translating into a food source for these other animals and mm-hmm. understanding how that fit and getting excited about wheat and, and emergence and, and diving into the science components of that. But it required me to physically be in the fields to be able to, to develop that mm-hmm. properly. And so that's how I chose to do it. I would learn, 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 learn. I would go to the field, apply, 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 apply. And that was just how I built my identity. So I do still scout fields today. In fact, my clients that work with me today know very well I am in their fields. I don't feel like I can give them all of me yep. if I am not physically engaging in their fields. And not just fields, also orchards and vineyards and yes. hemp plantations. Okay, <laughs> let's talk about some of the stuff you're seeing now with your your side biz, which is uh, growing, right? You're growing it. Okay, so you, you advise, you uh, help these people make money. They pay you per acre, per tree, per whatever it is. And then uh, give me a couple of your clients. Give me some specialty crop. Um, hops, for example. Perfect. Hops, by the way, dear listeners and viewers, I forgot. It's at that time. Before we get into hops, which when we're done with this recording, we're going to enjoy some hop-infused products that come out of a tap handle. But before I can do that, i got to thank my sponsor, which is Harvest Profit. Harvest Profit is a software solutions company that was begun by Nick Horeb out of Fargo, North Dakota. But it doesn't matter where Nick is, nor does it matter where Harvest Profit is, because we live in a digital world. If you want a software solution to help your agricultural enterprise run the enterprise better, more efficiently, more profitably, go to harvestprofit.com and sign up for a 14-day free trial. You're going to like it. Okay, hops. Here's what I know. I did a gig. I spoke at the Washington Farm Bureau um, back in, in Yakima several years ago, and I learned that Yakima at that point was the source. The Yakima Valley was where like 95-plus percent of the United States hops crop comes from. Now, that's been about, say, six or eight years ago. Since then, the proliferation of craft beer continues to go crazy, and a lot of them are these double-hopped, triple-hopped IBA, IPAs with, uh, what do they call them, you know, uh, they have a BU factor or something like this. So we're growing hops like we've never grown them before, and Michigan has always grown a few hops, but now maybe more than they used to. Yeah, so Michigan has um, a really, the microclimates you referenced earlier allows Michigan to grow a lot of diversity of crops. Hops being very sensitive to um, certain weather conditions, certain moisture conditions. In Yakima Valley, it's a completely different climatology. It's mm-hmm. a very dry climate, mm-hmm. um, more arid. Mm-hmm. Um, it's protected from a lot of the things that we deal with here in Michigan. So growing hops outside of the Yakima Valley is an extreme challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are several farmers that were up for the challenge and seeing an opportunity in the market space to bring something interesting and unique. Hops are being grown literally all along the 45th parallel, all along in, in, the, in the world. And similarly, below the equator as well. I have a a counterpart in Brazil that I have been engaging with now for several months, um, helping and coaching her as she coaches her clients on how to recommend nutrient management plans for hops. So they tend to be at a certain certain latitude. Like if I wanted to grow hops in Georgia, I'm not going to be able to grow hops in Georgia, or not very successfully. I won't say that there isn't hops. There's hops in Florida. There's hops in Georgia. Um, But scaling it is very, very difficult. Mm. So what you get out of the hops that are grown in these non-perfect 
climates. There's hops grown in New Mexico, for goodness sake. Um, there's no there's no reason why you can't grow hops anywhere, but it comes back down to scaling and efficiency of production. And so Michigan has these little microclimates that do really, really well. Um, so we have a little cluster of hops um, in the southwest corner of Michigan, one in the northwest corner of Michigan. Uh-huh. And then we have uh, a, a Michigan Hop Scores Association has you know farmers registered all over the state, um, but on, on relatively small scales. Mm-hmm. Um, so what we're really looking for for that production system is the right climate. Mm-hmm. Those products go to a microbrewery that's within 50 miles of there, probably. Right. Uh, so there's actually a very large hops producer here in Indiana, um, Crazy Horse Hops. They're in Knightstown. I have a great relationship with those guys. Um, they do a phenomenal job, and they're always looking to innovate. So um, they've been around for a couple of years now. They have a beautiful Osteen house. They have the full-scale production there, and they're doing everything from wet hops, where you can actually harvest the hops wet right out of the field and go take that to a brewery for a wet-hopped brewing technique, um, all the way to you know bagged and pelletized and baled material that gets shipped all around the world. Something super cool and new in the hops realm is extract. So they're taking the lupulin and okay. extracting that from the biomass. Wait a minute, lupulin? Yes. L- what's lupulin? Lup- lupulin is the um, is the compound in hops that gives it the hoppy flavor. The bitter flavor. flavor. Mm-hmm. By the way, it dawns on me, my wife points out, she says, you've done a good job of slowing down your cadence because you are a fast talker. And it dawned on me that if we've got someone that's a slow listener, they are really struggling because I'm talking slow for me, but you go, you you have a hard time talking slow, don't you? Yeah. I do too. Sometimes people say you got to slow down. I'm like, well, I can't think that slow, so I have to speak as fast as I think. Yeah. Anyway, all right. So hops, um, most of it's going to be used close by, and the proliferation of microbrews and and craft brewery places and and all that micro pubs. That's all where those things go. Uh, are these people in Michigan? Are they making money? On hops? The hops market is really, really tough right now. Okay. The hops market is at a at a very strange saturation point. Um, also, um, consumer demand drives certain things. What's hot right now in the hops that are planted in the ground this season may not be hot in three years when yep. those hops are ready to be harvested. You mean in terms of, it's the old thing about uh, like vineyards, you know, we're using this now type of a grape and it turns out that three years from now that grape has, that that flavor, that that style of wine is not as popular. So, right. all right, so speaking of grapes, let's go with that. I've been to the wineries in Southwest Michigan. I have drank in my life probably in the neighborhood of half of an ounce of wine. I didn't like it, <laughs> so I don't I don't drink wine. But I went with my lovely wife and uh, friends, and I'm usually the guy that hauls them around while they get out and they drink wine in southwest Michigan. It's a neat thing. Is it viable? Is it happening? It seems to me that it actually must be because they keep popping up. Sidebar. Can, are you also like a certified winery Uber driver, or, or have you added that to the resume? Yet? I have not put it in there yet. Okay. So, uh, but I can make sure that these I can make sure these amateur sommeliers get to their wine tour. So, there you do, go. do you work with any wineries? Um, I do. So I I work mainly on the grape production side of things, yep. and so a vineyard and a winery are two different things. Right, right, right. So a winery is where the wine is made. They often have tasting rooms and give you this agritourism um, appeal. A lot of grape producers don't have wineries, but they sell their fruit to a winery. Yep. So um, a winery may require you know whatever a hundred ton of grapes 
um, to produce all the wine that they have projected for that season, but they're growing 150 ton. Where does the extra go? It goes in di to different places, um, wineries that don't have the ability yet to, or they don't have established enough, or their cultural practices are lagging, so they're not getting the production they need. That's Those are the people that I like to work with yep. um, to help them achieve their fruit production. What do I need? What do I not know that I need to know about grape production? Certainly, you know, you think of Napa Valley and all that, but in the upper Midwest, in the Great Lakes states, what's going on with the grapes up there? They're 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 growing a lot of them. Yeah, so I'll just use the Great Lakes for example. Um, there's pockets even in Wisconsin and, and all around the Great Lakes, um, the Catawba and in, in Ohio area. There's there's lots of places around the Great Lakes that have um, you know these little wine growing regions. What you probably don't know is that there are French varietals, okay. which are what you would consider, or you might be familiar with your Cabernet Sauvignon, mm -hmm. um, your, uh, you know, any of your typical grapes that you would expect. Um, those are originating in, in the regions of France. Um, there's also uh, the cultivars originate in Italy and in um, Germany, Austria area too. So there's there, the, the cultivars that are being grown for commercial production came mainly from that region. Mm -hmm. um, different areas have different cultivar nuances, um, but there is also American cultivars as well. Mm -hmm. We call them cold hardy grapes. I work with several cold hardy grape producers in Michigan very specifically. Um, this is a relatively new market. These are relatively young vineyards and these are grapes that tolerate the cold weather very, very well. So the area um, areas like the Finger Lakes in New York, mm -hmm. um, the, the higher latitudinal geographies, um, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Michigan, are very well geared for that kind of production and that's a really up and coming realm um, it, it, invading the Space on the on the shelves in your local wine store. So it, these these the ones that you work with ultimately are almost all for wine. None of them go to Welch's or uh, Smuckers. Yeah, so there's a huge cluster of, of juice grapes that are produced in southwest Michigan. A majority of the non-wine grapes in Michigan go right straight to Welch's. There's a couple of places. There's one in Pawpaw. There's a couple of places in Michigan that process right away. Um, Nestle, the Gerber food company, um, baby food company, buys grapes as well. Um, but yeah, that's that's that market in and of itself is is continually dwindling. Okay. It's not cool to feed your kids juice anymore. Right, because it's, it's sugary and, and yep. whatnot. Okay, um... If you said, "Hey, what's a consistent and persistent problem with soybeans?" I'd say, oh, "Okay, they've got uh, you know some rust. We've got uh, what is it, sudden death syndrome, and we've got uh, herbicide resistant weeds." I know these things because there's soybean fields across the road from me. What the hell problems am I talking about with grapes? What is it, blight, uh, fungus? Um, uh, what, what problems do you battle there? So I would say grapes, um, you know, for the most part, are highly susceptible to things like um, mildews. Are tough. Okay. Um, those are those are really yield limiters. And so that's what you're dealing with there. Okay. One more specialty crop that you want to tell people about and wh and, and what you've done with it, and then we're going to get into hemp, uh, cranberries. I don't know, uh, blueberries. Probably something you work with. The, the average person that's listening to this is like, I always wondered about that. What do you got? <laughs> um, strange, strange crops. I guess. Um, I don't know if you know this, but there's a, a ridiculous amount of pumpkins produced in Michigan. Although Indiana leads, I believe, in pumpkin production. Yeah, maybe Illinois. Uh, Illinois, for some reason, is on the in the list. I read yeah, once. It's but definitely I up there. So pumpkins, obviously, are are a popular. Uh, 
a popular crop, especially this time of year. Everybody's sure, feeling the fall sure, feels. Right, right. But um, yeah, so pumpkins have some different nuance. They require a, a, a they have a very large fertility hunger. They mm-hmm. require a lot of nutrients to grow, um, and they are susceptible to lots of different diseases. And so one of my really interesting success stories, um, kind of is tar- has been targeting managing calcium in the fruit all through the course of the growing season and taking a more biological approach to the to the disease management. So we're using natural solutions to fight disease and pests, and we're using a more aggressive calcium program um, to um, to grow the fruit more robustly. Nitrogen isn't our limiter. It's how much calcium and magnesium and sulfur we have in the mix. So we just so it, of, need, it needs nitrogen, but it can't it can't uh, utilize it without the others. Is that the deal on the micros? Right. So nitrogen is going to grow us vegetation. Um, the fruit generally doesn't require a ton of nitrogen for it, the fruit finish. The right. fruit finish nutrients look a lot more like: Do we have blossom end rot? Is the bottom of my pumpkin getting nasty or bottom of my squash? So we're kind of really working on on that. Um, you know, nutritional condition um, is a way to improve efficiency in production systems to limit how much nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus we need. We're focusing on these other things and, and using a lot less of the MP and K. I like it. Yeah. All right. Hemp. Um, I've had one person on this podcast to talk about hemp, and I do believe that there's some opportunity there. It's completely, what do they use the word, nascent. It's, um, it is in its rookie season it's a screwed up mess the markets aren't clean you know you got stoners that uh are buying marijuana and then opening dispensaries and then there's people that say well you know it's the same thing it's not the same thing you got industrial hemp you got cbd it's the whole thing is kind of screwy right now and i have had farm guys say i planted that stuff and then i couldn't get rid of it because they didn't have a contract or somebody backed out what the hell's happening you basically just summarized it. <laughs> All of those things are happening. Yep. All of those things are happening. And I believe that there's a couple of really, really, you know, stop gaps in the in the mix that are really causing it. I think nobody wants to touch the regulation with a 10 foot pole. Uh-huh. And so the only the only voice that's coming to, to, to the forefront in terms of regulation is the DEA. And they don't have the jurisdiction per the 2018 Farm Bill that legalized industrial hemp. Yep. So um, and in fact, 2014 Farm Bill is what legalized industrial hemp. And it was left up to the states of whether or not they wanted to adopt. Okay, the, you said it was 2014. 14. 14. Yep. And then so, 18 is when it really became something we could do. So here's the question. All right, Christy, are you seeing, do you see weed and hemp, or are you only dealing with hemp? What is your job? Where, what have you seen? I work with cannabis producers that are growing recreationally. Um, I for, called it weed. I called it weed. You know what? It's cannabis. Okay. It's cannabis. It's cannabis. Get with the times. All it's right. cannabis. Pot. So. <laughs> Hooch? Uh, no, it's not hooch. Hey, this, whatever. All right. Yeah. I like to say this isn't this isn't the Cheech and Chong era, and and I really really hate the 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 joke the misnomer. Yeah, because yeah. what I've seen in the cannabis industry building a reputation and entering into I don't even want to call it pharmaceutical. I think it's just a completely different approach to wellness mm-hmm. um, that we're seeing in other ways. So this isn't this isn't just you know it's it's a totally different realm. So yes, I work with cannabis producers on the medical and the recreational side. I also work with producers that are growing industrial hemp. Before we do the hemp, the- yeah, because you're working with both of them. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about cannabis first off. Uh, I believe there's going to be growth. 
growth. I believe it's a growth category. I've seen the money pouring into it, pouring, pouring, pouring into it. Uh, you know, when Philip Morris is taking stakes in this uh, in Canada uh, last year, when when big money is pouring into something, there's some legitimacy there. Uh, of course, you know, big money also pours into, uh, you know, the dot-com bubble and, and big money is poured into Tesla. So they've been wrong. But I see an industry that there's a lot of demand. And, you know, a friend of mine that used to work in the pharmaceuticals, I said, is this crap work? And he said, well, you know what? Even when I worked for Eli Lilly, we had all sorts of studies that said half of effectiveness was just based on patients' belief that it was going to improve their health or their feeling or their pain or whatever. So in that regard, maybe it's, uh, you know, maybe it's more effective than we think. I don't know. You think it's a legitimate industry is going to be here for a long time and grow and grow and grow. And I do too. I, I, I do. I agree with that. I, the, one of the biggest challenges there, um, that's a philosophical question. And I think that's a very difficult question to, um, to answer is, do you believe that cannabis has a, a, a medicinal use? I, I personally believe the answer is yes, because I've seen some things happen with people that I personally have relationships with that has been life changing for them. Now, that's not to say that, um, you know, recreational use shouldn't be allowed. That's really no longer the narrative. It doesn't even matter. We're no longer being asked those questions. Right, right. And we're fighting the tide of modern pharmaceutical. Uh That's a tsunami. I don't. I do not believe that people that are growing cannabis even recognize how big the tsunami of big pharma is against this. They yeah, they, even, they they don't. They view this as a threat, and they've got gazillions of dollars, and so that's that's yes. going to happen. But it's good for agriculture, right? You've got somebody that's making money growing cannabis, and that's if you can figure out a way to make money in agriculture as a producer, that's good. Yes. Yep, I, I totally agree. I mean, cannabis, whether you're for whatever your purpose is, um, there's opportunities out there, and um, you know, the best thing. My very first, my very first question that I always get is, how do I know if this is the right crop for me? And actually, I've been working on developing um, some curriculum, uh, more or less an online webinar type of thing to help you answer those questions um, because everybody is is wanting to know should I go this route how do I do this who do I connect with where do I start so if someone does have those questions see because the problem seems to be getting rid of the stuff if I grow a bushel of corn my god I can there's three ethanol plants and four grain mills within a you know a 30 minute drive at my farm I can go get rid of it what do I do if I have a whole bunch of cannabis you don't grow it (laughs) That's really if 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 anybody has listened to any marketing information I've been putting out for the last you know six eight months, I'm not sitting here saying you shouldn't grow it, but I'm sitting here saying you shouldn't grow it. If you are if you're going to plant corn without a contract, then you need to be willing to accept the what market is paying when you harvest the crop. Yeah. Right? You have to be willing to accept those risks. You are not going to plant more corn than what you are going to risk. There's no difference. This is absolutely not different. If you do not have a plan, then you better be. So you say it's the same thing with cannabis. Okay, then tell me about hemp. Um, Different because it uh, is more accepted, and certainly we think, I think there's fabric is one of the big ones. You know, we got a whole bunch of people wearing polyester. As the environmental movement keeps, you know, growing, and there's this social consciousness, younger kids especially, they want to invest in things that make them feel good, socially conscious. I can't think of anything more important than saying, hey, that polyester shirt will never go away. This is made from natural hemp. Is that, is that the way? Is that where, is, where does hemp get used? Fiber? Clothing? Yes. What else? So hemp has just absolutely limitless opportunities. Absolutely everything you see that is plastic that we create with a polymer 
can be produced with a hemp derived polymer. Mm -hmm. And part of the in part of that conversation that you're just referencing, you know, this this movement to want to be more green. Um, there, there's some really interesting things to kind of you know unpack with that statement when mm -hmm. it comes to industrial hemp. So the hemp that's been produced by and large here in the states so far has been for cannabinoids. They are growing this for the the floral material that accumulates the cannabinoids, so they can extract that CBD or CBG or CBDN. There's all kinds of lower cannabinoids there to be utilized in a consumable material. The droplets, um, uh, you could roll it and smoke it like you would, just like a standard cannabis joint. Um, you, can, you can imbibe hemp, industrial hemp in this way. But there are so many other opportunities yeah. to impact the economy, impact our independence as a manufacturer and leveraging the genius that exists within the American you know, manufacturing machine and literally everything you see that is plastic can be produced with a hemp derived polymer and that technology is on the cusp of of exploding right now that is a very different cultivar if i'm growing hemp for fiber i should not be trying to harvest flower material and prevent male male plants to be in the field i want to have both male and female plants in the field i want the pollination i want it to complete its maturity when we're growing hemp for cbd we're harvesting a crop that is largely immature so that it stays compliant for thc we need to stay compliant for thc which means we are harvesting that plant way before it's reached its genetic potential for maximizing the quality so that's a different plant that grows like a little Christmas tree, like your standard, you know, cannabis plant. Your your grain and your fiber grows very tall. We seed it solid like a wheat crop. It's a completely different production system with completely different needs. It's interesting. <clears throat> Which you think all of it has big opportunity. I think it all has big opportunity. I think that we are currently in a in a vastly oversupplied situation with CBD-based yeah. products. Yeah. There's been enough floral material harvested in the last three years to supply the U.S. demand for something like 20 years. Yeah, so really it's got to be on the fiber side. If there's to be something, it's going to be on the fiber, yes. hemp yes. fiber side. Yes, and, and the, the soil quality properties there, are too, it has a very fibrous root. It has a lot of root exploration. The ability to um, regenerate the soil is really... Um, this is a, a carbon negative crop. We can utilize that. Um, those fiber fiber plants or, or grain plants, the waste can be utilized for construction materials so as hemp, well. Hemp could be uh, take care of the plastic problem. It could take care of. I can finally get a plastic straw without the environmental wackos getting after me. Mm -hmm. uh, it's. I've read that it's it's very good. It's drought tolerant, right? Very much so. So it's drought tolerant, and then also it doesn't have it doesn't deplete soil. It seems to be actually, like you said, pretty good for soil. Yes, it has a it has a tremendous ability to sequester carbon, and while it's going through that carbon sequestration process, it's actually converting it into something completely different. Um, so it it regenerates. We can grow this on an annual or twice a year basis, um, where our our forests and our other um, crops that are are cycling that carbon for us take 30 and 40 years to regenerate so there's an opportunity to complement the forestry realm and not be antagonistic there's a, an opportunity to complement american grown cotton and not be antagonistic you can you can produce clothing articles with hemp and cotton together mm -hmm. right so this doesn't mean that we we 
abandon cotton. It doesn't mean that we abandon American forestry. This means that we are providing something supplemental mm -hmm. that can heal our land, that can provide American jobs, and I'm really excited about that. We have a tremendous amount of um, feed quality opportunities, too, in the grain. How many hemp producers are you working with? I personally consult for 32 hemp producers in that, the Midwest. That is fan. Fantastic. We can talk about hemp a lot, and maybe we'll have Christy back and do that, but I know that you have work to do, and so do I, and so does she. So here's the deal. We're going to put a wrap on this. Closing thoughts. I just thank you for the opportunity to come on here, and if you guys want to follow along in my journey, um, you know I'm always up to something. You can follow me on Crop Scout Christy Lee on Instagram, Crop Scout Christy on Facebook. I'm on Snapchat, um, LinkedIn. Look me up and um, follow along, and let's have some fun. She produces good videos that are educational with a dose of entertainment, uh, almost like she learned that from somebody, and she is always doing different stuff. Again, it's not just that she's not looking at wheat germplasm every day. She's doing something cool and doing something something different that's why i thought she'd be a fun addition to the show plus i like her so anyway uh crop scout christy check her out wherever you do your social media thing and you can find her through me uh because she's always got some interesting stuff talking about especially crops and also the future of hemp so we'll bring her back on in a year and we'll talk about where hemp is going or where it's been thanks for being here thank you damien Till next time, it's the Business of Agriculture podcast brought to you by my good friends at Harvest Profit. Do go and check out HarvestProfit.com. You know you have a business enterprise that could benefit from a software solution that will help your business look like the business that it is. HarvestProfit.com. Follow me on all my social medias. Please share this podcast with someone that you think could enjoy it. And please subscribe to my YouTube channel where all these podcasts have been going since January. It's the Damian Mason channel on YouTube. Till next time. Thank you, dear. It's the business of agriculture. If you've enjoyed this episode of the business of agriculture, please share it with your network. Be sure to connect with Damien on LinkedIn, like his Facebook fan page, and follow him on Instagram and Twitter. For speaking inquiries or to purchase Damien's books, Food Fear, or Do Business Better, go to DamienMason.com.